It's called Let's Keep the Flames of Hope Alive. Never let the fires die. Let's keep the flames of hope alive. And never let the fires die. Take the lie of the lie. I'm going to interview Mike a little bit after the show. Um, how many people were here in 1986? Woo! Awesome. Well, the show's going to go on. Mike is going to be in read afterwards. Then there's going to be a little acoustic performance. But right now, I'd like to introduce Mike Peters. Jimmy Fallon show walking down there. <laughs> so uh, yeah, as Steve uh, said, um, thanks to Steve for introducing the, the show. The, uh, the Steve's the webmaster of thealarm.com, California resident, and was also at the original UCLA concert on April the 12th, 1986. Uh, it gives you a great place to introduce the film to you tonight. It's a source from um, a master tape that we thought was lost. Uh, we found uh, an hour of the concert in deep in the MTV vaults. Uh, I went there and uh, was, I asked them to look for alarm tapes in their file, and nothing came up for UCLA. And so I asked them to search for April 12th, 1986, and there was an unmarked tape. And it turned out to be a master tape of uh, the concert, an hour of the concert at least. So uh, that's, we've been able to uh, create a high definition version of the film, which you're gonna see in a few minutes for the first time ever. And um, so it's, uh, I, I saw a lot of hands going up and people who were at the original concert. So uh, um, the, throughout the evening, there's gonna be a Q&A after the film. So when you've seen the film play, stay in your seats, because uh, Steve and I will be sat on the director's chairs and uh, I'll take you through all the events leading up to and during the concert itself. And some pretty fascinating stories uh, in the back locker that people don't know about. So uh, that should be interesting. And then there'll be a little break for uh, 15 minutes. And uh, so if you want to come outside, I'll be happy to sign all the posters and anything you, you need uh, signing to commemorate the day. Uh, and then I'll play a concert on the stage to close out the night. And uh, don't worry if you don't get anything signed in the gap. Uh, but after 10 o'clock, we have to finish. So uh, I will stay on and sign whatever you need or photographs need taken there. So uh, it's going to be a great evening to get to know each other and uh, celebrate a fantastic day in the history of the alarm. And uh, as I say, when the film's playing, don't feel like you have to sit there quiet. Get stuck in like it's a proper alarm gig and clap your hands and stamp your feet and make as much noise as you want. So without further ado, let me introduce you to you. The alarm still I felt like I was there. <laughs> Back to the future. Um, yeah, everyone was making a lot of noise in the cinema in the movie room here and there. Yeah, it brought back loads of memories from the moment being there. You know, I'm so glad it was filmed and, and preserved for, so you could see it. You know, I was watching a bit at the back with my kids. You know, and they said, how old were you then, Dad? <laughs> <laughs> it was last week. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of it's all. It was such a big occasion. It's still really burnt in the memory. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I'm glad so many people here were there because it was. I, I forgot how affecting it was being there. It was amazing. So, tell me about the Genesis. How did it? How, how did that concert come about? Well, um, our first adventures in America had been with you two in 1983, and uh, we played at their under Well, we didn't play, but we were at the under blood red sky concert. We almost played. Uh, but it got, kind of got rained off, and, and if you if you see that concert, watch back at that concert, you'll see when they play 40, the Edge is playing my guitar, because it was set up for me to go and play uh, Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, but it never actually happened. Um, and we had a very close affinity with you two uh, through their manager, Paul McGuinness, and our manager, Ian Wilson. And at the time, in 1983, Ian Wilson was the agent for you two as well, so he was booking all their shows. So we, we were really close-knit, we were really good friends with the band as well. And um, I think uh, Ian Wilson had studied how U2 had broken America. In fact, when, when we, we got asked to do the tour, we found out years later that um, there was one stipulation from U2's manager, Paul McGuinness, to Ian. He said, look, Ian, if you come on the U2 war tour, you've got to be with our agency, Premier Talent. So the connections were starting then. And I think Ian saw how powerful the Under a Blood Red Sky concert was for U2 and thought something similar for the alarm would be a great opportunity and, and that was manifest in, on April the 12th, 1986. Awesome. I mean, okay, so you're going to do it in Los Angeles. I mean, great for me, right? Great for the people who are here, but why was LA chosen as the place to do it? Well, it, it was because it was the home of our record label, IRS Records, in America. and. Um, and we'd, we'd uh, at the, the event was, uh, venue was chosen by Carl Grasso, who was the artistic director for IRS Records. And um, they actually tried something similar with the English Beat not long before our show. Uh, and, but the English Beat wouldn't allow it to be promoted and filmed because they were doing a ticketed show the night before or the night after. And they didn't want a free show to affect the ticket sales for their main concert in California and the promoters and everything so um, it was just announced on the day and a few thousand people came to see them play uh, but Carl Grasso who engineered that show always thought this would be great for future use and when Ian Wilson our manager was talking about us about an event that would highlight all the great work the alarm were doing and how much uh, affinity they were building with their audience and how it was all everywhere was, was uh, turning onto the band um, Carl said, why don't we do this concert at UCLA? I'm sure we can get MTV to film it. Um, and that's exactly what happened. And, and I think it worked out well that it was a, a global satellite broadcast. It was the first time that had ever happened, by the way. Um, Live Aid had happened almost a year before, but that wasn't actually a global satellite broadcast. It was broadcast in Britain, and highlights were shipped out for the American one, and we got to see highlights of the American one from Philadelphia. But none of it was live around the world. That's why Phil Collins flew from London to be in America so he could be live twice. So is that why you chose to do it at three o'clock in the afternoon? That that was definitely uh, the consideration because at three o'clock in Los Angeles, it was six o'clock in New York on the East Coast. It was uh, eleven o'clock at night in the UK. It was midnight in Europe, and then. From Asia, it was the morning for Australia and Japan. 
So it was probably the only hour that everyone's awake in the world. And so three o'clock Los Angeles is the hour. And uh, it was great because it was, um, when you look back now and you see it in the daylight, I mean, and see the crowd, it, to me, it si signifies the birth of the mosh pit. <laughs> it really does. You know, because one of the questions people asked me when I first arrived in America, when we started playing gigs, was what's the difference between Britain and American audiences? Because then there was no internet. It, we, we saw what we saw from TV, from cop shows and that kind of thing. And, you know, I remember when we first got to America, Eddie, our bass player, he suffered from culture shock. I mean, you don't get that now. You're kind of pretty much primed for American culture when you first come here. And, um, but uh, I've got what I was going to say now. <laughs> the mosh pit, yeah. But uh, yeah, so when I, when I was talking about the people say what are the differences, I'd say, well, in, in Britain, we've gone through punk rock and the, the reaction from our audience was very physical. People would push the front of the stage they jump up and down in time to the music. And when we first came to America, punk rock hadn't really happened, so the audiences were very uh, less physical. They'd stand at the front of the gig, but they'd show their appreciation with their fists in the air, and they'd go, whoa, yeah! And they'd, uh, you know, they'd sing along, and they'd, they'd let you know they were there. But it, it, they went jumping up and down. Yeah, that just didn't happen. And, uh, and then after two or three years of playing and communicating with audiences and standing up and jumping up and down the front of the stage myself, it kind of got to the audience. And I think when you see the pictures in the daylight, you see people swaying and moving and people jumping on the stage. Well, I, don't, I think that's probably the first time that kind of ritual in a rock concert has ever been captured on camera. You know, really, yeah. you know I, I haven't seen Especially that. Especially worldwide. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, had a big influence, I think, in that, in terms of people like climbing on the stage, <laughs> doing yeah. that kind of thing. So yeah, we're we gotta, we talk about some of those guys that were climbing on the stage. There were some <laughs> great people. I, I think I saw Freddie Mercury at one point hanging out <laughs> one, one of the lap posts. <laughs> tight pants, and well, that was me. <laughs> so, um, there was was there some sort of accident or something that happened the week before? There was some reason why the show was going to happen, right? The, the show very nearly didn't happen, uh, mainly because uh, we, we'd been on playing with Pat Benatar leading up to the tour, and we'd done an arena tour with her, and every night I'd be saying from the stage, we're doing this free gig at UCLA, you've got to be there. And uh, people travel all over, and uh, we had a two-week break before the show, and we stayed here in, in Los Angeles. and. Um, and so, because we hadn't played for a couple of weeks, we'd organised a, a warm-up show on a Thursday night at, um, maybe even an earlier, like Tuesday or Wednesday, in UC Davis, up near San Francisco. And on the afternoon of the show, I, we flew up to San Francisco Airport, and uh, we landed, and everything was fine. And as I was stood in the to D plane, People, everyone was like looking at me really strange, and, and, uh, and I said, are you okay? And I thought, yeah, I've got big hair. And they went, no. And then the, 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 the sort of staff comes in, are you okay? We, we, you know? And, and I, I, they, they took me in the bathroom and I looked at my face in the mirror and it had blown up. I looked like Galen from the Planet of the Apes. <laughs> and I, this huge, my face just looked like abnormal and uh, it was all of a sudden I got really scared. And uh, we got off the plane and the tour manager took me straight to the hospital and, uh, and uh, they rushed me into the 
uh, emergency unit, and I, it was as if I was having a brain clot or something, and it was, all, it was pretty scary. And um, anyway, they realised I had some sort of big abscess going on right in the nasal region, and uh, anything there is kind of connected to the back of the brain. And it was really scary, and I was kept in hospital overnight, and then and I kept saying, look, I've got to get back to Los Angeles, it's a massive gig. Like, you're not going anywhere, mate. And I said, I've got to leave, you know, I sort of checked myself out. And uh, but they said, look, if you're going to go back to LA, you cannot get in an aeroplane or something really bad's going to happen. So we arranged to get back to LA, and uh, I went to see the best ear, nose and throat specialist California has to offer. And it cost an absolute fortune to see this guy. And I sit in the consultation room with him, expecting him to be, you know, x-rays and taking me here, there and everywhere. And he, he looks at me and he says, right, Mr. Peters, if we're going to get this gig on the road on Saturday, you've got to go home to your hotel room and stuff sugar up your nose. <laughs> and I said, did you say that right? <laughs> I thought he meant something with C, actually put up there. Was, you know. But no, he really did mean sugar. So I thought, okay. So for two or three days in the build-up to the concert, morning, evening, night, I was putting sugar up my nose. Honestly, I bagged a bit in the hotel room. And, uh, and then on, on the morning, I went to the sound check and I was still looking a bit of a mess. And, um, and then on the morning of the show, I, I got into a taxi to go and have one last consultation. And while I was in the car, just <laughs> all this stuff exploded all over the car. And uh, my face reverted back to normal. <laughs> so the Actually, when I was watching it on the screen, if, if you see the last couple of numbers, uh, you can, if you know that story now, you can see my face swell up a little bit and it gets a bit red under the eyes and uh, that was definitely a fallout from, from the incident. Well, you made it. That's great. Um, Whitney here was very lucky to make it, yeah. So was, uh, were all band members happy about the time and place of this concert? Uh, no, not everyone. There was, there was some debate about having the concert at night, you know, particularly Eddie, a bass player, he, he was very concerned that people saw the alarm like we were used to in the, in the dark with the lights and all the, the backlit guitars in the air for marching on and all that kind of, the trademark things that were part of our, our show at that uh, point in history. And so he, he was a little bit concerned that having it during the day, we'd lose all that dynamic and it would be a very different kind of gig. And uh, But the the considerations of the whole, the, the major impact of the event, the historic importance of it being the first satellite broadcast that overweighed any individual's kind of worry. And, and so we went a huge crowd too, right? Yeah, well, again, that, that was, uh, we we'd, uh, went down to the campus a few weeks before when we finished the Pat Benatar tour and we were coming, we came from Phoenix playing almost the last show. Um, there was a run up to uh, at Vancouver at the West Coast and uh, as we came through California, we stopped at the campus and had some PR photos on the site. And uh, but we kind of thought, well, it's going to be a lot of people to fill this space, you know. And, and we, we became aware of the history. We realised that uh, we made aware that uh, Martin Luther King had given an address on the site and John F. Kennedy. So there's a it was a historical importance attached to the place. So it kind of made us a bit scared, to be quite honest. And uh, but. Uh, it, on the night before the show, even when I went down to the sound check, there was still, there must have been about five or six thousand people just camped out 
uh, overnight and uh, Ian Wilson, our manager, became very concerned that the crash barrier at the front of the, uh, the, the, the venue, right in front of the stage, wasn't going to be enough to uh, sustain the massive amount of people that were coming and so he tried at the last minute, to, he spoke to Miles Copeland, the IRS records boss who was manager of the police, said, Miles, we're going to need to spend another $500 to strengthen the barrier, otherwise it will give way. And Miles is, you know, hey, I've given you enough money as it is, get out of here. <laughs> and so, uh, typically, 10 minutes before the sat, you know, we booked the satellite to come over at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was really, you know, you think you've got the technology in your pocket on your smartphone to broadcast live around the world now. Well, then we had to have a massive satellite truck and satellite dishes, and, and it was, you know, there was a plane flying overhead exactly at three o'clock with a satellite and a spaceship, you know. It was really the real deal. And at 10 to 3, there's 25,000 people turn up, and the barrier goes, collapses, and the people rush to the stage. And I'm getting ready to do the gig backstage, and the fire marshal of California comes in and goes, Okay, Mr. Piers, if you want this gig to go on, you're going to have to go out and ask your audience to move back. Because if they don't, this show is not happening. I was like, not again, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I actually came out onto the stage and asked everyone to move back. And Alarm fans, being the good-natured people that they are, they got up and they moved back ten foot and allowed us to re-erect the, what was left off the barrier and uh, it caused a lot of havoc for the production crew because uh, with the barrier going over and being reassembled they lost a lot of their camera positions so within 10 minutes it was like a massive production meeting of how to actually make the gig work uh, for television and but uh, good, the good firemen of, uh, of uh, California allowed the gig to go on and we were all very grateful and at 3 o'clock bang we were on stage and then it went so uh, let's talk about the show a bit um, everyone just saw it, of course, but how did you, how did you choose the songs to be in the show? Well, it was, it was really uh, the best of what we had to offer at that time. We had two albums out and an EP, and so it was the best that we thought was most making the most connections with the audiences from Declaration and Strength. I mean, Strength was still a new album for everybody at that point, and you can see that, 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 that we closed with strength to, to make that point. Spirit 76 was in there, Knife Edge, and Walk Forever by My Side. So the the uh, iconic songs from those albums, as history seemed to have dictated, uh, were, were in the mix, and The Stand, of course. And we played Knock on Heaven's Door because that was what we closed with, and there were any guests there, we'd pile them in on stage, and that's how we ended up doing it with you two so many times. So, um, what did you think of that crowd in that video? <laughs> Pretty crazy, eh? Yeah, it was amazing. You know, there were some great, you know, some great people. I, I there's a, I went and walked for. I was talking to uh, Tina Finelli. Is Tina here? There she is. I was talking to her at the uh, Canyon Club uh, the other week when I played the show there, and she said to me, uh, "I'm in the UCLA video and Walk Forever by My Side." There's a close-up of me in a black T-shirt, and I watched out for it this afternoon, and there she is. So. And she's still here after all that time, so <laughs> amazing. <laughs> this is my question. Well, I'd say, like, you know, um, you know, every every interview in the 80s would start, you know, asking you about your hair, you know, which is <laughs> But I want to public apologize for our hair, because we just do that thing. <laughs> I think everyone looks pretty good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty good on the hair for a hair count in the venue tonight. I think <laughs> <laughs> 
So, the after show. What, what happened after that show? Um, well, when we came off stage, uh, I think on the, the extra credits that we showed, there was a photograph of me holding a picture, and we kind of walked through the crowd and got signed autographs and things. But uh, the, the funny part of it was that uh, you, you don't hear it on, on this uh, screening of the concert, but when it was shown live in California and on MTV, as the credits rolled and we were playing Knocking on Heaven's Door, a voiceover came up over the end of the credits and said, uh, the alarm would like to thank the glamorous Hollywood Roosevelt for their accommodation this <laughs> week. So all of a sudden, everybody knew who we were staying at the Hollywood Roosevelt. <laughs> so every car that was leaving UCLA was tagging along to our minibus, going back to the hotel. So when we got there, it was, it was a bit of a mob scene of people being there. And um, I, th I think that, that the, uh, the hotel band that were playing that night thought, wow, we've got a big crowd. <laughs> And uh, we, we were, our friend Slim Jim Phantom from the Stray Cats was there with uh, his then wife, uh, Britt Eklund. And uh, we all had a hangout together. And next minute, we're on the hotel and becomes the alarm, and we did it all again. <laughs> Some of us did, anyway. But it was, a, it, was a, it was a fantastic night. You know, we, we, we all knew it was a high point for the band. Our friends had come over from the UK and they couldn't believe it. They got interviewed before the show on MTV and they had even worse haircuts than we did. <laughs> so I always remind them of when I see them back home. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was um, we, we knew it was sort of life-changing moment for all of us, really, I think. Um, even when we woke up the next day and, and set off for the second part of the tour, you know, we knew life was going to be different, that the audiences got that bit more physical, especially after everyone had seen UCLA. All of a sudden when we played in Pittsburgh or Omaha, Nebraska, everyone was pushing and shoving down the front. They saw what to do. They saw what to do and uh, it, it got very intense from then on. I, I forgot to ask, okay, so uh, the football, tell me about the football. Oh, well, if you uh, watch closely, uh, you, you can hear it on the original VHS, which was just the broadcast sound, which wasn't great. Um, in, in the build-up to the show, there were some interviews with Carl Grasso, one of the creators of the event, which in Billboard magazine, and he'd said that uh, the fans, would what they saw was what they were going to get on the VHS. There was going to be no tampering with the broadcast tapes, no remixing of the audio. Uh, what you saw was straight to video. And, uh, and that's why the VHS came out almost within a couple of weeks of the concert finishing. It was certainly out by the 1st of May, early May. And um, so when, when uh, we got to hear the actual gig, um, Marching On was playing almost in time. As, as it hits the first bridge, you hear a massive boom on the, on the sound. And it, we were like, what's that? And then our roadies said, they could hear us talking about the sound and they said, oh, well, somebody threw an American football from the centre of the crowd and it came in an arc over the whole audience. It was so high you wouldn't see it. It was right behind the band and it went straight into the... You know the, when you see a bass drum on the stage, it's got a little hole cut in it for the microphone? Well, it was like the perfect shot. It went straight in, bang, onto the bass drum mic, on time, exactly on the beat. And, uh, I was able to fix it for, for the audio when I got to remix the audio for, for uh, this 
this uh, concept DVD that's coming out. So you did, you went back and, and, and re remixed? Yeah, when, when the, I looked into doing the reissue and, and upscaling the film to high definition, um, I searched everywhere for the original master tapes and then I realised there weren't any. Uh, Carl Grasso and IRS Records, being as good as their word in the build-up to the show, had decided not to run any tapes in the individual cameras. So the cameras were actually just filming and relaying it back to the broadcast vehicle where the guy was doing an edit and rolling a tape to capture what you saw on the TV. And so um, I, I was hoping to find footage of me, you know, asking the audience to step back, but the, none of that exists and uh, I can't find any of that at all. And, uh, but luckily there was a 24 track recording of the audio. So I was able to go back to the original master tapes, clean it up, create a really good balanced mix and uh, you know, have Dave Sharp sound as good as he always did do when he went out on the stage and get a great drum, drum kit sound for Twist and Eddie represented it. And, and have the band sounding at probably one of its best ever shows historically. Yeah, sounds awesome. And, uh, you know, so uh, I was glad I was able to do that and, um, and, uh, and create the video from, I think it said when I introduced the film, I was lucky enough to find in MTV a, a one hour uh, really good quality uh, master of the concert that had been lost, but it was a, a broadcast master from a, um, probably a couple of weeks later when they re-showed the, the concert and they cut it down to an hour. And uh, so I think it's Howling Wind um, and uh, Knife Edge and Where We Hide When The Storm Broke, the three songs that aren't in high definition, you could maybe see there was uh, some loss in quality during those those songs. But um, the, the only really good master I could get for, for those was not in MTV or anywhere else or from the VHS, but uh, I sourced them through eBay. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, uh, I, 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 I spotted that I didn't know that one existed at the, at the time, but uh, the Japanese being ahead of the curve, had, created a, a digital laser disc of the Spirit of 86 concert, so I actually bought one off eBay in, a, in an auction. I was getting bitted up to the end. Please, I'm in the band, stop it! <laughs> anyway, uh, but uh, I won the bid, and, uh, and, and I was able to uh, capture the, the footage, but it's not quite as good as the, the MTV tape, but uh, it did save the day to allow us to see the whole concert. and. Uh, and then uh, our media partners in the UK uh, meet uh, Russ, Rob Spall at, at, and Russ Kendall from uh, media partners and Kaleidoscope Pictures. They were able to, um, we sacrificed a little bit of quality by going from you know, the square 4.3 format, which is the old TV, we, we pushed it up a little bit to make it a 16.9 widescreen film, so it looks really modern. And, um, and we had to re-digitise uh, some of the footage um, and use computers to where the camera would pan up and down. We had to kind of almost follow the cameras digitally uh, with a computer programme to keep it steady so you don't see the joints at all. Good night, Chad. No, I, they, they've done a fantastic job, especially with what we had to work with here. So what was the uh, reaction? The record company, radio stations, everybody else after the concert, how did it, how did it feel? Yeah, well, it was, um, you know, at the time, the, the, back to your early question, it was really the time for the big push for the alarm, and the, the typical alarm timing came into play. 
the song that was released to promote the concert was Spirit 76. You know, it was, it was sort of the era of Bruce Springsteen, really, and, and I think uh, the IRS Records and MCA thought that was a great fit at radio, and it would suit the, you know, again, there wasn't a lot of alternative radio in 1985, 86. It was still very much classic commercial rock was the uh, mainstay of American radio as epitomized by someone like Bruce Springsteen. And I think uh, the label thought that was a great opportunity to get the alarm on the radio. And, um, but uh, in the build-up to the show, there was a massive payola scandal hit America and there was people speaking up in Washington about the, the uh, unethical um, means that record labels would get their music played on the air by li literally physically threatening DJs and, and so we got caught in the midst of all that when everyone just pulled out and so uh, the records came out without the sort of same promotion that we would might, might have normally expected to be able to compete with other bands but uh, the, the momentum in the band was so uh, strong at that point, you know the word on the street, people would see the band and, and that was really all we needed. You know, we we never we the alarm was never on a major label directly. You know, and, and so everything we did was grassroots. It was through endeavour of people like IRS Records, thinking outside the box, coming up with great creative ideas, and and it was really built on on that. You know, a love of music rather than just throwing masses of dollars at something to make it stick. This was a, a project. The alarm was it was built on enthusiasm, and that's what was surrounded it and that's what made it real I think to this day and that's why we built a genuine sort of relationship with audiences with the music of the band and uh, and that's a bit of by surprise event like today yeah okay so finally uh let's just how are the guys in the band doing these days yeah the guys are good you know that um everyone's in a, a great space everyone's where they want to be you know Eddie McDonald has just released a new EP he's got a new band called Small Town Glory and he's just, uh, you know, it's the first music he's made since uh, the 80s, really, that, the last the, 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 um, year of the ninth, uh, first year of the 90s. So he, he's really excited about that, and we've been helping to promote on thealarm.com. Um, Dave Sharp plays loads of gigs around the UK, and he's really happy. He plays the music he wants to play in his style. And, uh, and Twist, our drummer, is... Uh, is a defence investigator in San Francisco, and uh, I always, uh, when I speak to him, I always say it's uh, it's the only job he could get. Where in rock and roll, he's allowed to wear his sunglasses every day, and as a defence investigator, he can wear his sunglasses legitimately in his job. So uh, everyone's uh, is cool in a great place and uh, and happy. Well, that's that's fantastic. Well, I'd like to thank you very much for doing this for us, bringing us out here. Thanks, Steve. Um, We're doing the, 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 the video is amazing, and so thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. So we'll take a little break here now for 10 15 minutes and then happy to assign anything or your posters out there and uh, while you get a bit of fresh air. And then uh, we'll come back in and we'll I'll play all the songs you think you want to hear and more. <laughs> So, uh, and also, uh, I'd like to just introduce you Rob here, who's uh, from the charity that looks great, and he's going to tell you about the for his guitar. Hi guys, if you don't know, I'm sure you know a lot of us already, but 
Mike started a wonderful charity along with a few other gentlemen, and we save lives from cancer around the world by doing bone marrow drugs at concerts. So uh, it's his inspiration that takes us, it keeps the six of us in America working along with thousands of amazing volunteers to really save lives. We've signed up a little over 130,000 people to be bone marrow donors, and out of that we found right at 2,500 <laughs> Um, we're, all, we're doing some fundraising tonight, and this guitar is the main emphasis of it outside. There's also some other uh, sign memorabilia, but if you get a chance, buy a couple of raffle tickets if you can, because this guitar is, uh, he had a little fun with it, and it, uh, it has words from every single song that was on the set list from the original 86 show. So this is, uh, is going to look great in somebody's collection tonight. So please check it out. Please, if you're not a marrow donor, please stop by. You can get your cheek swapped tonight and help us save lives. Thanks to this guy. Thank
gives me strength, someone to live for. Give me love, give me hope, give me strength, give me someone to light the fire. Give me love.